The scripture lesson, Genesis 45, verses 1 through 15, it's in the bulletin. You may follow along in your Bibles as well. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. So dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall settle in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. And your children and your children's children as well as your flocks, your herds and all that you have. I will provide for you there since there are five more years of famine to come. So that you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. And now your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my own mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father how greatly I am honored in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. While Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that his brothers talked with him. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. Reading that passage again and realizing how often the reference is made to Father, to Father Jacob in particular. And on this Father's Day, I want to acknowledge all of you who are fathers and to remember our fathers and those men who were father figures in our life and still are. We're grateful to God. This sermon series for June is based on a book by Tom Rainier called I Am a Church Member. Two weeks ago, we talked about being a functioning church member, that is, a disciple, a member who realizes that membership has its privileges, but it also has its responsibilities. And then two weeks ago, I mean one week ago, we had our youth choir homecoming concert and That was incredible, and uh, I hope you had a chance to hear that and to see that. Today we're going to talk about what it means to be a unifying member, and next week we'll complete this series. We'll go in a different direction in July, but we'll talk about what it means to be an unselfish member or an unselfish disciple. Charlie Brown is nose-to-nose with Lucy. Lucy holds up her hand and speaks assuringly of five separate, different, unique fingers. And she makes clear that these five fingers put together can become a fist. 
and pack considerable power. And Charlie Brown says to his own hand, why can't you guys get together? So what I want us to think about for the next little while is unity, what it means to be a unifying member, a unifying disciple in the body of Christ. Unity, I want to begin with what it ain't, but I won't say ain't, so I'll begin with what it is not. And then we'll talk about what it is and what it does and how its absence and later its presence impacts a biblical family and how it can impact our families and our work and our school life and our church life. Importantly, our church life, our life together as the people of God. So let's talk for a moment about what unity is not. Unity is not about everybody agreeing about everything. There isn't any such thing. Where two or three are gathered, there will be at least two or three different opinions, and sometimes even more than that. About 75 years ago, E. Stanley Jones, and some of you may have read some of his works and remember him, quite an influential figure in Methodism back in his day. This is what he had to say about that. He said, but you ask, how can we come together unless we agree in everything? But we do not make that a prerequisite, he said, a fellowship in the home. The home can be a unity in spite of differences in temperament and belief. We need our differences as possible growing points. The music of the Hindus, he said, is based on melody and not on harmony, like Western music. A Hindu heard some folks singing, singing very spiritually, loud, passionately, and they were singing in parts, and they were bringing out marvelous harmony. But this Hindu guy says, what a pity that they can't all sing the same tune. Had they done so, Jones said, it wouldn't have been harmony. The very difference made for the richness. We shall never get melody unity, for we cannot all sing the same part. But we can have harmony unity, and that will be far richer. Unity is not everybody agreeing about everything. Unity is not everybody looking alike, presenting a similar appearance. I think back to 1995, to the 1995 Atlanta Braves, the last time they won a world championship. It's about time they did that again. But consider, if you will, a photograph of the 1995 Atlanta Braves and and look at it very carefully. They don't all look alike, do they? They're short people and tall people and light-skinned folks and dark-skinned folks and folks from different countries around the world, and many of them spoke different languages. But apparently there was a unity on that team because disunity very seldom leads to any kind of championship, much less a world championship. And I had the question, does unity lead to victory? Or does victory lead to unity? And the answer is yes. Unity is not everybody agreeing about everything. Unity is not everybody looking just alike. And unity is not the ignoring or the suppression of different opinions. In his book, Well-Intentioned Dragons, a guy named Marshall Shelley is writing about unity in the church. And I liked what he had to say. He said very briefly, now, it is not expressing differences of opinion. 
These are inevitable and even desirable. One person's insights balance another person's quirks. The church is stronger when its unity comes out of diversity, when the body of Christ is more than birds of a feather flocking together. Unless the differing opinions are outright vitriol or heresy, they need not be feared. Controlled friction, he said, produces energy, and energy is essential for creativity and effectiveness. Different ideas should be allowed to coexist, and God allowed to take the lead, thereby raising one opinion to prominence. A person is not a dragon because he has different or she has different ideas. We're dragons because of destructive actions. Unity is not everybody agreeing about everything. It's not everybody looking alike. And unity is not ignoring or suppressing different opinions. I'm certain that there are other things unity is not. But lest we get mired up in this ain't pit, so to speak, let's move on and talk about what unity is. Unity is having a common mission, a common purpose, common goals that we work toward, holding to a similar vision of what a preferred future might look like, being committed to a common cause. AWP, and that is anonymous wise person, AWP once said people will work eight hours a day for pay, for good pay. People will work 10 hours a day for a good boss. But folks will work 24 hours a day for a good cause. A joint destination. Where are we headed? Unity is having a common mission. It's having a common source of strength. How did that line go from the three musketeers? And I may have it close, if not exact. All for one and one for all. And Longfellow and Hiawatha wrote, All your strength is in your union. All your danger is in discord. Describing the value of a friend and the unity that can be found in that kind of friendship and fellowship, the writer of Ecclesiastes, which is a really interesting book in the Old Testament, the writer said two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up the other. But woe to the one who is alone and falls and does not have another to help. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though I might prevail, one might prevail against another, two will withstand one. A three-fold cord is not easily broken. Unity is having a common mission, a common source of strength. And it is, in the words of the psalmist, a good and pleasant thing, something to be desired. Dr. John Maxwell was teaching about church leadership, and he's written several books on leadership in the corporate world and in the church world. He says that anyone who enjoys conflict probably needs to be in serious therapy. But he says that conflict and confrontation are inevitable, so we can't ignore it. But we can approach it in the right way. And he said, most of us, wouldn't you agree, are healthier physically, emotionally, and spiritually in every way when our relationships are good, when we're getting along with one another, even those who see the world differently. 
the Apostle Paul was writing to the Colossians, one of my favorite of his letters. Philippians, my favorite, is so encouraging and uplifting. But in Colossians, he said, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace and be thankful. Unity, how did its absence and later its presence impact a major family in, in the Bible? A family that we often refer to as Jacob and sons. And it, it's interesting the way the Holy Spirit works sometimes. I'm teaching the Henry Kitchens class this morning and we're talking about parts of this Genesis story too about Joseph and, and Jacob and, and Pharaoh and all of those things. But, but let's think about this story for just a little bit. An account of Joseph, Jacob's favorite son. son. Let me summarize this tale just a little bit for you. I think most of you remember it. One of the most amazing stories in the Old Testament in all the scripture. Some would say that the Exodus story is the defining story of the Old Testament in the Jewish people. Others would say it was not the Exodus, but the other X word, the exile. But the Exodus, the amazing story of deliverance. Joseph was a shepherd by trade. An unusual coat hung in his closet. And he was subject to some really wild and weird dreams that he just had difficulty keeping to himself. He had to talk about it. These dreams picture Joseph in a position of authority over his 11 brothers. And they were less than thrilled when he shared this message with them. You don't need to tell everything you know, but it took Joseph a while to figure that out. Now, seizing the first opportunity available to them, the brother said, we've got to get rid of him. We need a permanent solution to the Joseph problem. And the first choice amounted to what was, in essence, murder. It's like the defendant told the judge in Alabama, but your honor, some folks just need killing. They want it Joseph done in with. But then greed took over the murderer's thoughts, and they said, why don't we sell him? Why don't we sell him as a slave? We'll, we'll make a little money. We'll be done with him. We won't ever have to see him again. And so they came up with the story of death by a wild animal, and they put blood on the coat of many colors and uh, told Father Jacob that Joseph had been done in by a wild animal, and Jacob just sunk into a pit of despair and grief. Joseph wound up in the employ of Captain Potiphar. Potiphar was a higher up in the administration of the Pharaoh at the time. And as far as dreams were concerned, the Pharaoh was having some pretty weird ones himself. But Joseph got into a little situation, a little unpleasantness, you might say, with Mrs. Potiphar. And she accused Joe of completing a pass that he never threw. So Joseph was checked into the big house and striped sunshine was his new companion, a new way of life. And while he was in prison, Joseph became known as one who could interpret dreams. And that reputation eventually reached the ears of the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh was starting to have all these wild and, and weird dreams himself. So Joseph was summoned from the depths of the dungeon. And he was able to use the gifts that God had given him. God was working through Joseph 
to interpret these dreams. And Pharaoh was talking about these dreams that cows and shocks of wheat and skinny cows eating big cows and weeds, scrubs, eating up the big shocks of wheat and just some really strange stuff. And Joseph was able to help him understand that there would be seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt, followed by seven years of famine. And as a result, because he had a plan, Joseph became second in command in all of Egypt. He's like a souped up commissioner of agriculture, and he really had a lot of power. Meanwhile, back at the Bar J Ranch, Jacob's clan was getting hungry, and the conversation that resulted in them going to Egypt could barely be heard over the rumbling and the roaring of their empty bellies. So upon arrival in Egypt, they encountered long-lost brother Joe, who recognized them, even though they did not recognize him, not at first. And after a disjointed series of interactions, Joseph revealed himself, and there was a tearful reunion and the family experienced a unity that had long eluded them and that all seemed to come together when father Jacob finally came to Egypt it's hard for me to tell this story to think about it without hearing the music from Joseph and the amazing technicolor dream code in the background it's a pretty amazing work But what broke up the family in the early days? What destroyed this family? A, there was the arrogance of Joseph. Then your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. The sun and the moon and the stars were bowing down to me. Arrogance is defined as an exaggerated sense of one's self-worth, self-importance. What else broke up the family of Jacob? There was Jacob's glaring favoritism. Now Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, any of his other children, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a coat of many colors with long sleeves. It's difficult to guard against. Whether we're on the giving end of it or the receiving end of it, favoritism can be an issue, can be a problem. Did anything else contribute to the breakup of the family? Yes, it was the hatred and the envy and the deceit of the brothers. Their response to Joseph. They were all culprits. But when Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more, they plotted against him. What are we going to do with him? And later they hated him even more because of his dreams. Their envy fueled their hatred and deceit reared its ugly head when they plotted together to destroy their brother and to convince Jacob that his son was dead. Maybe that's the most evil thing in all of this. Who in the world would tell a mother or a father they had lost a child when it hadn't happened? Now, what brought unity back to the family? A, there was the physical hunger. Hunger can lead to humility when we're lacking those things we really need in this world. The famine became severe throughout the world. Joseph's brothers came and they bowed themselves before them. A genuine physical need can place any person in a position of humility. And maybe it's happened to you. Was anything else involved in restoring unity to the family? Yes, the gracious, forgiving spirit of Joseph. Come closer to me. I am your brother Joseph. You sold as a slave into Egypt. 
God sent me here to preserve life. So it wasn't you who sent me down here. You thought you knew what you were doing. But this was God's work all along. And he kissed his brothers and he wept upon them. And his brothers talked with him. I think, and it's my opinion, that the most Christ-like figure in the Old Testament is Joseph. Maybe you can think of others, but this is a Christ-like action that he's taken. The forgiving spirit. Now, what else escorted unity into the family circle? Once again, it was providence. It was the work of God. There's no doubt about that. More than anything else, it was God's spirit that brought unity back to this family. And then, in turn, this family would become God's people. And they would be a nation that was blessed to bless the nations of the world. Such an important thing. This circle of life, filling in that gap. Our best efforts sometimes are often tripped up by our worst intentions. Healing and peace and hope and restoration and salvation come ultimately only by the movement, only by the grace of God. In spite of all we might try to do, if unity was looking for a place to call home, and if it was all up to us, unity would be homeless and sleeping under a bridge. Now, thinking about our families and our places of work and our church family are the same elements that undermine Jacob's family still at work in the world today, seeking to undermine God's people. And I believe they are. There's arrogance. Folks who inflate their self-importance to such a degree that they derail unity by putting their own wants and needs above the wants and needs of the larger group and the larger body. That happens over and over again. And then there's favoritism. We all have our favorite things, our favorite people, and we've got to be careful, especially in, in God's church, with God's people. When we single out some folks for blessing and we hurtfully exclude other folk, then favoritism can do its dirty work. The book of James had something to say about that. James always sort of cut to the chase, didn't he? Just put it out there. James said, my brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, here, have the most prominent seat in the house, Make yourself at home. We are so glad you're here. But you say to the one who's dressed in rags, here, you sit in the corner over here back where we can't see you and maybe can't smell you either. Have you not made distinctions among yourself, James says, and become judges with evil intentions? Hatred, envy, and deceit. This unholy trinity is wreaking as much havoc in this day as it did back in the day of Jacob and Joseph. A one, two, three punch that time after time has knocked unity to the mat, leaving it gasping for breath and wondering if it was going to live. Now, continuing consideration of families and places of work and church family, are there some of the factors still at work that can serve to unify us and strengthen us and give us hope for the days to come? The same elements, perhaps, that united Jacob's family, Joseph's family so long ago, How about that genuine spiritual hunger or need coupled with the spirit of humility? Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. 
And then that verse that we hear so often about when we humble ourselves, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will heal them. Then unity will have a fighting chance. How about forgiveness as Joseph expressed it? Can it knock down walls and barriers of hostility, allowing unity to find a home in our hearts and in our churches? And then there's providence. Only by the grace of God can unity become a reality. We can't do it on our own, no matter how hard we try. The one who died for us prayed for us, prayed for the unity of all of his followers across the centuries, prayed for his church, Jesus, and I believe John 17, the night before he died, that beautiful prayer for all those who would come after, a prayer for unity for God's people that we might do the work that Jesus started, that we might all be one. And of course, we need to pay attention always to that voice crying in the wilderness, the voice of the prophet Charlie Brown. (laughs) Why can't you guys get together? We're called to be unifying members and disciples to make a difference in this world. Amen.